Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the histories of abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements. I'm your host, Ashley. Today, I offer you season's greetings. I'm taking you on a winding road through the history of Santa Claus, the history of the towns of Santa Claus, and the history of America's first theme park. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. So, as a content warning, this week I will be talking about the big guy in the red suit a lot. If you've got young children who still believe, maybe put this one on headphones. When you're researching anything, an easy question to ask is, what was the first? What was the first fast food restaurant? It was White Castle, 1921. What was the first interstate highway in the U.S.? This one's complicated, but it was either a portion of what is now I-70 in Missouri, which had the first contract signed in 1956, a portion of I-70 in Kansas for being the first to actually start paving later in 1956, or part of I-70 in Pennsylvania, as it was opened as a highway back in 1940 and later incorporated into the interstate system. And then to bring it around to the Abandoned Carousel, our podcast, what was the first theme park? Not the first amusement park. Let's, let's be clear on this. Let's draw some lines with terminology. Amusement parks in the United States go back a century and a half, at the very least, with trolley parks in the middle of the 19th century considered to be some of the first true amusement parks in the United States. Lake Compounds in Connecticut is said to be the oldest continuously operating park in the United States, opened in 1846. The earliest amusement park in the world, still in operation, is called Bakken, located near Copenhagen, Denmark, and said to have opened in 1583. 1583. But these are just, quote-unquote, amusement parks. They are places where visitors are amused with rides and leisure activities and so on. However, a theme park is a horse of a slightly different color. It's an amusement park, but with a theme or a themed area to organize it. Society in general popularly likes to point to Disneyland and the enormous influence that Walt Disney's first park had on the theme park concept. But as I mentioned in the last episode, theme parks did exist before Disneyland. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. The first theme park in the United States. Coincidentally, several of the first theme parks actually had Santa Claus and Christmas as a theme. So, season's greetings, everyone. Here in the end of 2019, let's talk about the history of Santa Claus and a few of his homes in the United States. This episode is about the towns called Santa Claus. So what's the deal with Santa Claus if we're going to talk about him a lot today? 
Santa as we know him today is an amalgamation of the 4th century saint, St. Nicholas, the British Father Christmas, the Dutch Sinterklaas, and the Germanic god Woden associated with Yule. Santa, of course, is associated with the holiday of Christmas. Christmas as a holiday is actually not as straightforward as you might think, or as I learned when I did a little bit of research, and I'm not going to go into it in depth. I'm only going to touch on this briefly. We have the obvious association of December 25th, considered the birthday of Jesus Christ in Christian religions. In the Roman calendar, December 25th was also the date of the winter solstice. The medieval calendar was dominated by Christmas-related holidays, early versions of Advent and 12 days of Christmas as we know them today. In the Middle Ages, there was actually an association of Christmas with lewdness, debauchery, and parties. And it actually went so far that the Puritans and the Pilgrims actually banned Christmas. They banned the celebration of Christmas in the mid-1600s for being too strongly associated with drunkenness and these negative behaviors. And so in response, the churches called for the holidays to be celebrated in a more devout and more religious fashion. From, from about the 1800s onward, public perception of Christmas began to be reshaped, particularly in the media, um, as a time for family and gift-giving. And this was mostly, it seems like it was mostly popularized by Charles Dickens's 1843 A Christmas Carol, which created or combined much of what we now consider Christmas celebrations. And I actually saw it referred to as the quote-unquote carol philosophy, like Christmas carol, promoting goodwill towards all men, values that in general could be espoused by both religious and secular alike. And although it took until about 1870, Puritan attitudes did shift, and Christmas in that year was finally declared an official U.S. holiday. Today, of course, it can be argued that Christmas, and particularly Santa Claus, are largely commercial juggernauts more than anything else. As the North American colonies developed through the late 1700s and early 1800s, as I said, the media really started shaping the narrative. And so if we're looking at Santa Claus, Santa Claus really began to be established around that time. So an American newspaper, the Rivington Gazette, was the first paper to establish the name Santa Claus back in 1773. And of course, Santa began to be immortalized in print with poems and storybooks, and of course, that seminal work, The Night Before Christmas, published in 1823. Now, as I told you, he was originally Santa Claus, our friend here. He was originally kind of an amalgamation based on this saint. So a lot of the early depictions of him showed him in kind of um, a traditional church bishop's outfit. And it really took until about 1809 when Washington Irving uh, wrote a parody of New York culture. Um, and in this parody, he was really the first to take away the traditional bishop getup and give Santa like a pipe and a winter coat. But it was really a political cartoonist during the Civil War that gave us the modern image of Santa Claus, the man that we think of today. Ho, 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 ho. Thomas Nast was a Bavarian-born immigrant. 
He came to America as a child. He did poorly in most of his school subjects, just he wasn't interested. But that was because he had this passion for drawing. By the age of 18, with several years of artistic study already under his belt, his drawings first appeared in the magazine Harper's Weekly, which you might recognize. Nast went on to have a long history with that magazine, and he's actually come to be known as the quote-unquote father of the American cartoon. He advocated for the abolition of slavery, and he opposed racial segregation. He also created the modern political symbol for the Republican Party, the elephant. His cartoons were instrumental in shaping public sentiment for the 1860s elections of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, and are said to be responsible for the election of Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat elected after almost 30 years of Republican control. In the words of the artist's grandson, Thomas Nast Hill, quote, It was generally conceded that Nast's support won Cleveland the small margin by which he was elected. In this, his last national political campaign, Nast had, in fact, made a president, end quote. And amongst this broad list of credentials, Nast is also credited with creating the modern image of Santa Claus, and it was originally used for political commentary. The Christmas issue of Harper's Weekly for the 1862-1863 season was published in January of 1863. It was the middle of the Civil War, the year of the battles of Shiloh, Manassas, and Antietam. It was a year with the Union experiencing both extreme trial and intense hope. The nation was divided by the Civil War, and the celebration of Christmas brought conflicting emotions. Nast drew several images, including the cover image for that issue, and it was titled Santa Claus at Camp. His drawing depicted a Santa Claus figure arriving by sleigh in a Union Army camp to distribute gifts and good cheer. His Santa is shown in an American flag-inspired outfit, stars on top, stripes on the bottom, everything fur-trimmed with a pointy hat. It was originally political commentary, or maybe even considered pro-Union propaganda, depending on how you felt about it. Lincoln, President Lincoln, reportedly once said that Nast's images politicizing Santa were, quote, the best recruiting sergeant the North ever had. End quote. Despite the political roots, Nast's images, especially this Santa Claus at camp, set the seeds for today's image of Santa Claus. Nast did more than just draw Santa, though. He was reportedly also responsible for fixing Santa's home address as the North Pole. This was done in his post-Civil War um, issues and comics and drawings, and was reportedly done, quote, so no nation can claim him as their own, end quote, for propaganda, as Nast himself had done. He continued to draw Santa, publishing at least 33 well-known Santa images for Harper's Weekly over his time there. His 1881 image, Merry Old Santa Claus, is probably his most famous. Um, It's one that I'd actually seen before I started researching for this episode. So I'll include an image of it in the show notes, as I always do. Um, You can find the show notes for this episode with pictures, links, all my references, and a written version of the podcast. 
at my website for this particular episode. It's going to be theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 26. Thomas Nast had an 1881 image that's probably his most famous. It's called Merry Old Santa Claus, and it focuses just on Santa Claus. It shows a twinkly-eyed, bearded man dressed all in red, clutching bundles of toys. But just like the Santa Claus at Camp image, this one is, again, more political commentary. And I was actually surprised to learn it actually relates to the government's indecisiveness at the time over raising the wages of the military. I found it really odd and fascinating that political cartoons could shape our cultural images so strongly. It was really interesting to think about the fact that a political cartoon could really set the line for what we think of as Santa Claus. In the 20th century and onward, literature and promotional images continued to shape and refine our images of the jolly old man. L. Frank Baum, the very same author who penned the Wizard of Oz series, actually wrote a book about Santa in 1902, and it was called The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. This book went further and really set in stone a lot of the Santa mythology. And as an interesting sidebar, Santa has a small cameo in the Wizard of Oz books. Um, So I guess he's canonical in that series. Uh, He appears in The Road to Oz, one of the sequels to The Wizard of Oz. Beyond books, though, even more influential were promotional images of Santa Claus. Yes, yet again, more images of Santa Claus. As we've already discussed, Santa was shaped by political commentary and just a general amalgamation of media and all that stuff. So it's not surprising that his image was pushed onto the world of commercial promotion for products and goods and services starting in the late 1800s and early 1900s. However, his image was not consistent from artist to artist. So I glossed over this somewhat when I was talking about Thomas Nast, but there was never any consistency in how Santa was drawn prior to about the 1930s. Even though Nast sort of shaped how we think of Santa and what we think about him, there was still a lot of variation between different artists. A lot of them relied on the famous poem, um, The Night Before Christmas, obviously. Um, And there's a line in there, a little old driver so lively and quick. And artists took from this many interpretations, and they tweaked their images, they edited them. There was not a consistent image of Santa like we have now. Sometimes Santa was tall and thin, sometimes he was elven, sometimes he was a shriveled old man, like there was no consistency. So we enter the 1930s. A little company called Coca-Cola was looking for a new way to increase soda sales during the wintertime. They had a new slogan called Thirst Knows No Season. So we enter another incredibly influential artist, Haddon Sundblom. Now, Sundblom worked for Coke, and he was assigned to draw a new Santa for this Coca-Cola company promotion. He came up with a modern image of Santa. Friendly, warm, pleasant, plump. This guy was a cheerful, rotund Santa. He had white hair and a red suit, 
red cheeks, and just an overall jolly affect. Sundblom's first ads with the new Santa debuted in 1931. They were a hit, to say the least. Coke sometimes still uses Sundblom's original art in their ads to this day. And not only is it Coke, for whatever reason, these images were so influential in popular culture that this was the image of Santa that codified what Santa Claus means in cultural imagination. No longer were there interpretations of Santa, tall and thin, elven, no. Sunblom's characterization of Santa became the ideal image of the legend that still carries on today. <laughs> People, of course, had dressed up as Santa as far back as the legend goes. Early costume Santas were often used around the holiday season to ring bells and solicit monetary donations for the poor. It's said that the first department store Santa appeared in 1890 when a man in Brockton, Massachusetts named James Edgar dressed as Thomas Nast's Jolly Santa for the delight of the children in the store. Here's a quote from a man who reportedly saw Edgar as a child. Quote, you just can't imagine what it was like. I remember walking down an aisle and all of a sudden I saw Santa Claus. I couldn't believe my eyes. And then Santa... And then Santa came up and started talking to me. It was a dream come true. End quote. You can't, I mean, it's, it's incredibly hard for me to think about personally now when we're so saturated with the internet and just TVs everywhere and just how connected everything is, how instantaneously you can get anything you could possibly imagine. But if you think about 1890 and... You might see one or two images in a book that was, you know, handed down and treasured because books were incredibly expensive, you know, and suddenly this guy that you'd been telling stories about and just you've only ever seen him in your imagination and he appears in reality. How cool would that have been as a child? It had to be mind blowing. So, I mean, it's not surprising, of course, that the idea caught on. So by the turn of the century, the department store Santa was a common figure. He apparently even was so much so a common figure that some of the papers of the time actually issued cries for only one Santa Claus per town with the reports that it was confusing the children. The big name in the Santa Claus field as we move into a more modern era is a guy named Charles Howard, who we're going to talk about next. And he's apparently quite well known in the Albion area, some 60 miles north of Buffalo, New York. Charles Howard was born there around the turn of the century in 1896. He was a farmer and a toy maker and a secretary for the County Fair Association. Some describe him as having a flair for the dramatic. As a child, his mother sewed him a suit a Santa Claus suit, so that Howard could play the role of Santa as a self-described, quote-unquote, short, fat boy. He continued with the role of Santa, having developed this affection at an early age, as he got older, and he made himself, obviously, new suits as he grew. He worked as a traveling toy maker and a traveling salesman, and somewhere in the early 1930s, he suggested that a local furniture store hire him to play the role of Santa, like, in the front window 
during the holiday season while he made toys in order to promote the store. And this apparently worked pretty well because eventually he moved to the big city, 35 miles from Albion to Rochester, New York, where the owner reportedly took one look at Howard dressed in his suit, didn't even interview him, and said, when can you start? The popular story of Charles Howard realizing the importance of Santa, immortalized by Howard himself, goes as follows. Quote, One morning, a little girl came in and watched him work. She stood there for some time before she ventured closer. Then, a step at a time, she walked up to him and very timidly asked, Santa, will you promise me something? Santa looked at the child and said, What is it you want me to promise? He had already learned that promises sometimes meant heartaches. He did not want to make any mistakes. However, this child seemed so sincere, so earnest, that he took her little hand in his. The child drew closer, looked up into his face with all the love and trust that a five-year-old could, and whispered, Will you promise me you will never shave? End quote. And this was really moving and triggered something in Howard. If Santa, the image of Santa, never shaving, always maintaining that beard, if he meant so much to this one little child, he must mean so much to many. Quote, who was this old fellow who meant so much to the children? Where did he come from? What did he stand for? Why did he wear that red suit? Why was it trimmed with white fur? Why this and why that? End quote. And so at the same time, in his regular life, as I told you, Howard was a traveling toy salesman. And he saw a lot of Santas throughout his travels. And he reportedly, quote unquote, frowned on the unkempt costumes and lack of child psychology displayed by many department store Santas. So in 1937, Charles Howard established the Santa Claus School. Charles Howard's first class was a single student, but as he raised tuition, attendance grew at his Santa Claus school. He held classes on his farm. He offered lessons on, quote, psychology, costuming, makeup, whisker grooming, voice modulation, the history and legend of St. Nicholas, and learning the correct way to ho, 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 end quote. It was Howard's opinion that being Santa was about what was in your heart and your head, not about the girth of your belly. He also developed a line of Santa Claus suits. I mentioned earlier that his mom had made a suit for him when he was a kid, and he carried this on, and he developed his own Santa Claus suit. And these suits were actually fancier than your standard costume at the time. But as Howard said, quote, worthy of the character as we knew him, end quote. Um, and so he actually started selling them adjacent to or at part of his school. And students at his school actually flocked to the suits, and they took in the lessons. They loved the whole package. The details of being Santa were important, and Howard was reportedly a stickler for them. Quote, how the suit should lay on you, how your beard should be. It had to be the right shape and the right length, and how your glasses should look. Everything had to be perfect. He wanted every Santa to be as close as possible to each other. End quote. At 
this point, we're going to step back from Charles Howard and Albion for a little bit. Um, we've got several different stories and they all kind of intertwine. So we're going to be hopping back and forth. It's going to be fun. So for now, let's turn our attention away from New York and look down south some. We're going to a small town in Indiana and we've got to turn our clocks back a little bit too. The year as it goes was 1855. A small town in Indiana was working on establishing a post office. They were already known as Santa Fe. I pronounce it Santa Fe. Reportedly, it was pronounced Santa Fe. The trouble was, there was already another town in Indiana by that name, and it already had a post office, so they couldn't do that but they needed a post office. So they decided to rename their town and they held a meeting to pick a new name. Legend has many versions of the story after that point. Everyone agrees that there was a meeting, but every part of what actually happened at that meeting is at the best conjecture, if not totally, totally made up. Some people say the wind blew the door open, and with it, a Santa Claus came barging into the meeting. Some say there was a child who heard a passing sound of jingle bells and exclaimed, Santa Claus! Some say it was the fact that the meeting was held on Christmas Eve. Whichever version of the story you believe, all are certain to be embellishments at best of the true story, which we'll never really know. What we can know is that in 1856, the United States Post Office granted the town the official name of Santa Claus, Indiana. Well, this was the first time that there was a town by this name in the United States. So the post office started sending some of the children's letters there, the ones that were addressed to Santa Claus. And it became this huge barrage of mail in the holiday season. And since at least 1914, various groups of people began getting together to answer the children's letters that were sent to Santa Claus, not only on a local level, but on a national level as well. And these programs actually still exist today. The town of Santa Claus began to attract national attention in 1929, when the post office in Santa Claus was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not cartoon strip. And then we enter the 1930s, which were a big decade in Santa Claus operations here in the United States. On a general socio-political economic front, the recovery from the Great Depression was beginning in the 1930s, with FDR's First New Deal alphabet soup agencies being put into place. And big changes were happening all over. Route 66 was beginning to be built, among many other events not relevant to the show. It was really, you know, you think about this time between the First World War and the Second World War, and a lot was going on. Perhaps the attitude was one looking for hope and light. Maybe that's why there was so much Santa Claus stuff going on. We're going to start with Santa Claus, Indiana, in the 1930s. The 30s were a huge time for this small town. Specifically, we start with an entrepreneur, as we always seem to. This one goes by the name of Milt Harris. 
The tale goes that he looked around the town of Santa Claus and saw no Santa. The big guy wasn't anywhere to be found. He wanted something for the kids. So Harris had the idea to begin creating what some call the first true tourist attraction. Harris began creating the first true tourist attraction in Santa Claus, Indiana, apparently in conjunction with the town postmaster, James Martin. Before he did that, though, Milt Harris did something with lots of business sense, and that was to lease nearly all of the land in and around the town, something like a thousand acres. And he began securing sponsorships from various business entities. His attraction was called Santa's Candy Castle, and it was dedicated in December of 1935. This guy made some good business decisions by including sponsorship in his attractions. It, this one was sponsored by the Curtis Candy Company. I've never heard of them, but you'll know them because they are the inventor of the Butterfinger and the Baby Ruth candy bars. Today, of course, you will not be surprised to know that they are now a Nestle subsidiary. Santa's Candy Castle was the first tourist attraction in the town of Santa Claus, and by some accounts, it's considered the first themed attraction in the United States, although that seems like a very unlikely claim and also very hard to prove one way or another. So we'll just leave that there. Santa's Candy Castle was a red brick building. It was shaped like an actual castle. It had crenellated tower, a turret, and a rotunda. The next year after the castle opened, new attractions were added, and collectively, they were now called Santa Claus Town. The toy village was incredibly popular. There were multiple fairy tale themed buildings, each sponsored by a national toy manufacturer. This was reportedly quite popular because children of the Great Depression were able to come in and play with all of the hot new toys that they had heard about or desired and couldn't get, but were able to play with them for free. And as the years rolled on, Harris reportedly managed to negotiate a sweet deal because for some period of time, I was not able to find specifics, retailers, including Marshall Fields, would arrange for toys that were purchased in Chicago to be drop shipped, essentially, from the Santa Claus post office in Indiana in order to get that official Santa Claus postmark to kids all over the world. Santa's Workshop was another attraction that was added to the town, where children could watch a Santa Claus figure making wooden toys. And you might remember a few minutes ago our friend Charles Howard, who was a Santa that could actually make wooden toys, but it doesn't appear that he actually performed the role at the Candy Castle, although that parallel would have been delightful if it had actually occurred. The Candy Castle was a success, and in no small part, like I mentioned, it was because it was a free or, at the very best, cheap attraction, and it was a way to provide entertainment for kids during and after the recovery from the Great Depression. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the town postmaster, James Martin, was reportedly pretty heavily involved in all of this. As town postmaster, he had his finger in the pie to take the temperature of the town 
to mix our metaphors. He noted the increased volume of letters being sent by children to Santa Claus around the holidays. And he took it upon himself to begin answering those letters. By all accounts, this was not an insignificant amount of mail. In the 1940s, the post office reportedly handled 1.5 million pieces of mail. By all accounts, this was a not insignificant amount of mail. In the 1940s, the post office was reported to have handled 1.5 million pieces of mail in Santa Claus, Indiana. And in the 1950s, an article noted that the park had handled over 4 million pieces of mail during the Christmas season that year. A 2014 article has revised this number down to half a million pieces per year, and a 2017 article indicates the number is down to around 200,000. So what that says, I will leave you to draw your own conclusions. But at the time that we're talking about, the 1930s, this was a huge big deal, sending mail to Santa Claus, Indiana, in order to get that postmark from Santa. So our postmaster, Martin, he had a friend, and his friend was a guy named Jim Yellig. Born as Raymond Joseph, but known to his friends as Jim, Yellig was another guy with a Santa Claus association developed from very early on. The story with Yellig goes that he was serving in the Navy during the First World War, and his ship was docked in Brooklyn, New York. And the crew was throwing a Christmas party for the underprivileged children in the area. Yellig was chosen to play Santa Claus, and the story is that he was apparently so touched by the children's happiness at seeing Santa that he prayed, quote, if you get me through this warlord, I will forever be Santa Claus, end quote. Yellig, after the war, opened a restaurant called The Chateau in Mariah Hill, Indiana, a few miles north of Santa Claus, Indiana. He began driving to Santa Claus to visit his friend Martin, the postmaster. And soon after, Martin enlisted Yellig's help in responding to the children's Christmas letters. By 1935, Yellig had formed the Santa Claus American Legion Post in order to assist with the letters as Santa's helpers. And he began dressing up as Santa and making appearances around the town of Santa Claus, including at Santa's Candy Castle. And... He actually took a class from Charles Howard's Santa Claus School. Held at Santa's Candy Castle in 1938, this was the only time that these two incredibly famous Santas were known to have met. And a picture of this meeting can actually be found online. From this point onward, Yellig began calling himself, quote, the real Santa from Santa Claus, end quote. At the same time that Yellig was coming onto the scene, Harris's plans for the Candy Castle had caught the attention of another entrepreneur, reportedly Harris's arch rival, this guy named Carl Barrett. Now, Barrett decided he did not like Harris's quote-unquote materialism, and so Barrett began planning his own attraction called Santa Claus Park in direct competition with Harris just down the road less than half a mile away. So Harris, he was the one with the Candy Castle, and Barrett, he was the one with Santa Claus Park. On Christmas Day, 1935, just days after Harris's Candy Castle had opened, 
Barrett dedicated a 22-foot-tall statue of Santa, erected on the highest hill in the town. He claimed that it was paid for by the people, that it was built on a spot where a meteor had landed, and therefore that it was divinely inspired, and that the statue was made out of granite. At least one of these claims later was revealed to be false, and you can have your own opinion about the veracity of the rest. Barrett's plans were just as big as Harris's. Barrett wanted to make his Santa Claus Park a world shrine, a children's dream paradise with log cabins, a giant dollhouse, and an ice village. It never moved forward, however, as in January, Harris sued Barrett, essentially derailing both of their grand plans. I'm not going to get into the details, but lawsuits went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the two of these guys, mostly regarding land ownership and who actually had the rights to build on the land and yada, yada, yada. It actually even made it as high up as the Indiana Supreme Court. Really what they were battling about, though, was they were battling over the right to Santa. Harris and Martin were able to continue expanding Santa Claus Town, the one with the Candy Castle, due to their sponsor partnerships. But Barrett's more principled of the people stance relied reportedly solely on personal donations due to his spectacular Santa. But the thing was that people began to notice that his spectacular Santa didn't look so great. In fact, it had started crackling and crumbling. And if you know anything, you know that granite is not going to crack and crumble after only a couple years. As it turns out, his granite statue was actually made out of concrete and Barrett had lied. This obviously didn't sit well with the townsfolk. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for the two of them, war broke out. World War II, more than just a petty squabble between business rivals. And so things grew quiet in Santa Claus, Indiana. And the attractions there, especially Barrett's Santa Claus Park, fell into disrepair and neglect. Let's step back in time a little bit and interrogate something I mentioned earlier. Apparently, by 1928, the United States Post Office supposedly decided that there would be no other post office with the name of Santa Claus due to the influx of holiday mail and the staffing problems that had been caused over in Indiana. This is an unsubstantiated fact from Wikipedia, but it does appear to at least be technically accurate. There is only one post office in a town named Santa Claus, and that's Santa Claus, Indiana. But there are two other towns by the name. There is a Santa Claus, Arizona, and a Santa Claus, Georgia. I'll discuss the latter first, because it's not really interesting for the purposes of this podcast. Sorry. Established in 1941, Santa Claus, Georgia is a cute little small American town. It's located a few miles from Vidalia, home of the Onion. Um, but the Santa Claus, Georgia town is tiny. It only has a couple hundred people. It's very quaint. It has holiday-themed street names. It has a Santa Claus mailbox, but not a post office. And it has an oversized Santa statue that people can pose for pictures by. 
But for the purposes of this podcast, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about the place. It was reportedly given the name Santa Claus in an effort to drive traffic to local pecan farms. It's too small for any fancy restaurants or attractions beyond the name, but it is still there and people still live there. So if you're from Santa Claus, Georgia, or there right now, and you're listening to this podcast, hello. I think you probably are glad that for the purposes of this podcast, I think your town is not that interesting. The other town. The other town. Santa Claus, Arizona. Santa Claus in Arizona? Yes. There's also a Christmas Arizona. There are lots of, there's a snowflake Arizona. I grew up in the Arizona desert myself, and the notion of a Santa Claus town there has tickled my funny bone since I ever first heard about it. There's just something so absurd about trying to focus on Santa and icicles and snow when you're surrounded by creosote bushes and tiny lizards and endless brown desert dirt and, admittedly, beautiful sunsets, and you don't even own a winter coat because it's Arizona. Santa Claus, Arizona, was the brainchild of a realtor named Ninon, sometimes spelled Nina, but it is Ninon, N-I-N-O-N, Talbot, and she was born in 1888. Can I pause for a moment and tell you how thrilled I am to finally be able to talk about a woman for part of this podcast? This whole section is going to be about her. It's very good. The famous sci-fi writer Robert Heinlein had nothing but praise for Talbot. He described her thusly, quote, In her own field, she was an artist equal to Rembrandt, Michelangelo, and Shakespeare. End quote. No, this was not the kind of caliber of person I was expecting when I set out to shape a holiday episode of a podcast about abandoned theme parks and attractions, but here we are. Talbot promoted herself as the biggest real estate agent in California. It was a fun play on words since she was apparently over 300 pounds at the time, so she just embraced it. The biggest in the business was her slogan, and thank goodness we've got a person who has a sense of humor. Talbot and her husband moved from Los Angeles to Kingman, Arizona, in the late 1920s or early 1930s, and their goal was to sell land or set up a resort or otherwise make money. We all like to make money. Kingman was a hub of sorts. It functioned as the big city in the area in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and it was there to service all the small mining towns that littered the nearby hills. It also attracted folks stopping off what we now think of as Old Route 66, the Mother Road. But back then, it was new. Talbot established herself with a hotel first. It was called the Kit Carson Guest House, and it's said to have been located right in the heart of Kingman, at the intersection of what is now I-40 and US-93. Here, she honed her skills in charisma and cooking, enticing her guests. Said a person who knew her at the time, quote, she knew how to treat people. She could sell you anything you didn't even want, end quote. After a few years, Talbot sold the Kit Carson guest house, and she had a new profitable venture in mind. She purchased 80 acres of land some 14 miles north of the town of Kingman. And I should stop here and say this is all probably meaningless to non-locals, 
The town in question is in the northwest section of the state. It's about an hour and a half south from Las Vegas and three and a half hours north of Phoenix. So Talbot purchased this land. What did she have? She had the town of Santa Claus, and it was incorporated with the obvious theming implied by the name in 1937. She called it Santa Claus as a promotion, as is not surprising, as a way to attract folks to the town to buy the one-acre plots of land she was selling surrounding it that she was calling Santa Claus Acres. You might be asking yourself, though, why someone would think it was a good or profitable idea to try and sell land up in what is even still today a very remote area of the state. And to have it make sense, I need to tell you about what else was going on in Arizona at the time. In the early 1900s through about the 1920s, it was settled that a dam on the Colorado River was something that they needed to build. Uh, It would provide flood control, irrigation water, and hydroelectric power generation for a growing number of people that were occupying these new and expanding desert towns. Additionally, it would allow US-93 to connect Arizona and Las Vegas over the road instead of with the ferry boat that would be very inconvenient if you think about it that was in use prior. President Coolidge authorized what was called the Boulder Canyon Project Act in December of 1928, and construction began in 1931 on one of America's seven modern engineering wonders. Suddenly, tens of Thousands of workers were moving into the area to begin building the massive dam, many living in the model city just over just over on the Nevada side, Boulder City, Nevada. Not only that, but the construction of the dam was on such a huge scale that it became a tourist attraction before it was completed in 1936 and after. Suddenly, there was this huge new audience that was driving on US-93 past this town to see the Hoover Dam, originally called the Boulder Dam. And so Talbot, she really was onto something. At the time, drivers still expected to be surprised around every bend of the road. This was the 1930s. Drivers wanted to have great times and not necessarily make great time as the saying goes. Or perhaps they didn't have a choice. This was the age before the implementation of the interstate highway system. Do you remember the beginning of the episode? It did tie in. Thus, the proliferation and success of roadside attractions, corridors with wild theming and over-the-top names to entice drivers to stop at this gas station and not the other one. Do you remember the prehistoric forest in Irish Hills, Michigan back in episode four? That was another roadside attraction. It didn't matter if the attraction itself was makeshift, a bit garish, or something of a letdown. It was the idea that mattered. You were in the middle of a long, long drive and you saw this sort of interesting thing? Okay, that's fine. Let's stop there. Santa Claus, Arizona then was another one of these. It was a roadside attraction enticing visitors as they drove to and from Las Vegas, Hoover Dam, Kingman, Phoenix, and so on. See, while people didn't actually want to live there, spoiler alert, Talbot managed to create a fun roadside attraction. Everything had a Santa theme or a North Pole theme with candy cane striped buildings and green roofs. 
It almost had kind of a Swiss chalet feeling, which was certainly startling in the desert, especially back in the day when it was mostly adobe and cheap wood, and definitely not Swiss chalets with gingerbread trim. Talbot called her town, quote, the pride of the desert, end quote. And it was said that in its heyday, Santa Claus, Arizona could rival anything else along old Route 66. Only, like I told you, back then it was new. Route 66 only began paving in 1931, so this was the exciting new road to go down. Talbot's charisma and excellent home cooking were the perfect bedfellows for the incongruous theming at this otherwise lonely desert gas top. Now, I already mentioned his name at the beginning of this section, but... Famed writer Robert Heinlein, who you might better know for his Starship Troopers, among others, actually wrote about this small town, and he actually shaped a whole 1950 short story about it called Cliff and the Calories. And he wrote about the town as it arose from the, quote, grimmest desert in the world, end quote, which I've been through that desert, I agree. Quote, you know what most desert gas stations look like, put together out of odds and ends. Here was a beautiful fairy tale cottage with wavy candy stripes in the shingles. It had a broad brick chimney, and Santa Claus was about to climb down the chimney. Between the station and the cottage were two incredible little dolls' houses. One was marked Cinderella's house, and Mistress Mary, quite contrary, was making the garden grow. The other needed no sign. The three little pigs and the big bad wolf was stuck in its chimney. End quote. The centerpiece building was named the Santa Claus Inn. Though some retellings of the town story indicate that this was solely a renamed Kit Carson guesthouse, this was actually a brand new building, and it was designed by Talbot's husband and built by local Kingsman contractor W.J. Zink. In addition to the holiday decoration and prominent Santa Claus, a Christmas tree also stood outside. And of course, the building was later renamed from the Santa Claus Inn to the Christmas Tree Inn. Inside, the restaurant was decorated with nursery rhyme paintings from a former Disney animator, a guy named Walter Winsett. And apparently these paintings were so important that he came back on multiple occasions and like touched them up. Breakfast at the restaurant was 75 cents, about $13 in today's money. Lunch was a dollar and dinner only served on Sundays and holidays, was $1.50. The restaurant was famed for its chicken a la North Pole and rum pie a la Kris Kringle. Talbot dressed as Mrs. Claus, and she brought her vivacious energy to the task at hand. Quote, any known or asked for dish or delicacy asked for will be served. The everyday routine provision of ordinary food is not the policy of this age. End quote, she once said. Year-round, she began serving five-course meals every single day. A historical postcard gives a sample menu. Olive, celery, iceberg lettuce, fruit, shrimp cocktail, tomato or chicken soup, chicken, lamb chops, or filet mignon, sherbet, salad, and multiple desserts. The star of the show was apparently the desserts. There was ice cream, multiple types of pie, and cake. And, of course, coffee and mints. All of these, of course, have very holiday-themed names, which I will not reiterate here. But rum pie a la Kris Kringle will give you an idea. Talbot's cooking brought much of the fame to this roadside attraction. Famed food critic, a 
guy you might know, Duncan Hines. Yes, the guy who now has lots and lots of cake mixes bearing his name. In his day, he made early Zagat-type guides of good restaurants across the country for his friends. An essential at a time prior to GPS, cell phone data, the internet, etc. One of his recommendations was the Santa Claus Inn, which, in addition to having good food, actually offered a moderately air-conditioned space through the use of a relatively new technology at the time called swamp coolers. Heinz considered the Santa Claus Inn to be one of the best places to eat in Arizona. Heinz actually even included Talbot's rum pie recipe in one of his cookbooks. Quote, perhaps the best rum pie you ever ate, chicken a la North Pole, and lots of other unusual things, end quote. There were other quote-unquote attractions in the town of Santa Claus as well. There was one ride, which was a tram that was shaped like a train, and it was called the Santa Claus Arizona Express, and the locomotive was called the Old 1225. That's Christmas, in case you didn't get it, 1225. A donkey apparently wandered the grounds, and one set of people apparently owned for some time a buffalo? Inside the two small themed cottages, nursery rhyme dioramas amused the children who were stopping by. And of course, there was the special post box. Like we've discussed, there wasn't an actual post office, but there was a mailbox, and it had a special post mark that they were allowed to use, and it said Santa Claus, Arizona, via Kingman. Talbot responded to every child's Christmas letter that came, and Talbot also sent postcards to every visitor who stopped, whether for gas or food, reminding them to come back. The 30s through the 50s in Santa Claus, Arizona, were a magical time. return to Albion, New York after the war, where our friend Santa legend Charles Howard had established his Santa Claus school, if you remember. And it ran for two months at a time in October and November of each year. Howard continued to busy himself in the Santa Claus field as well. He actually served as Macy's Santa-in-Chief, and reportedly, he was Santa in the first nationally televised Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. He continued this parade appearance for the next 17 years, and he even served as a Santa consultant for the very famous 1947 Miracle on 34th Street. Locally to Albion, Howard decided to expand his Santa Claus school. He wanted an attraction for the children and families as well. It was called Christmas Park, and it was located right on his farm, where the school itself was located. In comparison with any true theme park or true amusement park, this is honestly closer to a playground with a theme, as, you know, today's summer festivals in my town have more rides and attractions than this park did. But nevertheless, at the time, it was a huge draw. America was still recovering from the war, it was still traveling locally. 
Christmas Park had a themed playground. It had a petting farm with goats and real reindeer. It had a wishing well, a pan-for-gold type attraction called Santa's Gold Mine, a toy and gift shop, and a diesel-operated miniature train called the Railmaster that was memorable for going through a tunnel. And I'll link to um, some photos of the park in operation. They're in a... um, They're available through Google Books, so you'll want to click on the link. They're not embedded in my site. Howard reportedly had a collection of antique sleighs that he placed through the park for theming purposes. He also had a Christmas tree ride. This was interesting to me when I found some more details about it. It was actually a specially custom-made version of the classic Alan Herschel helicopter ride, but instead of helicopters, the buggies were themed as round Christmas ornaments. And then they went around like a Christmas tree in the center. <clears throat> Inside the various barns and outbuildings, there were Christmas-themed displays, fake snow, and a constant stream of Christmas music. The park opened in 1953 with a short 13-week summer season. In later years, the park was open year-round. According to accounts online from people who visited the park as children, there was no trouble for them believing in Santa Claus because they lived in the same town that he did and they could see him any time. Back down south in Santa Claus, Indiana, the post-war landscape saw a lot of run-down attractions. A local businessman named Lewis Cook entered the scene, looking for a retirement project. He and his wife had nine children, and they loved the holidays. Cook thought the town of Santa Claus, with that wonderful name, needed more attractions that appealed to children, especially ones that featured Santa himself. In the early 40s, then, he purchased some of the lots of land in Santa Claus, Indiana, The war postponed development on the attraction, but the family was able to break ground in 1945. The attraction was christened as Santa Claus Land, and it opened in August of 1946. And without much fanfare at all, I present to you the recognized first theme park in the United States. That's right, Cook's little retirement project, Santa Claus Land, is considered America's first theme park. It started out small, a sort of family business that Cook ran with his son, Bill. Originally, the park had no entrance cost. It had toy displays, Santa's toy shop, a restaurant with a Bavarian village theme, and a few children's rides, including the Santa Claus Land Railroad, a miniature train ride that went through Mother Goose-themed displays. And of course, there was Santa Claus himself, portrayed by the legendary Jim Yellig, who we talked about a little while ago, the so-called real Santa Claus from Santa Claus. Not only those things, but the Santa Claus post office itself actually moved that same year to a new building on the property of the Santa Claus Land Park, as the former building was reported in bad condition. That former original building itself was also moved and restored, and it was renamed as House of Dolls, a doll exhibit part of the attraction. Bill Cook, though initially reportedly pessimistic about the park's chances for success, was buoyed by the first few years of operation, and he actually took over operation of the park from his father. He expanded the park, he added a ride area called Rudolph's Reindeer Ranch, 
the first Jeep merry-go-round ever manufactured in 1947, and in 1948, a deer farm with a few of Santa's reindeer. There were things that were called educated animals. These were sort of animal exhibits where trained animals would do things. There was the fire chief rabbit and the piano playing duck. There was also a wax museum called Hall of Famous Americans. The 1946 Christmas Room Restaurant was an incredibly popular attraction in the early years. It drew crowds just like Santa Claus, Arizona, and like the very famous Knotts family, where chicken dinners were the star that attracted long lines. Bill Cook was actually quoted as saying that their business in the early years was built on those chicken dinners. In 1952, the Cook family actually put up the park for sale with quite a few strings attached. See, the family was worried about the effects of managing the park on Lewis Cook's health, the senior, the patriarch. But at the same time, they also did not want to see the park commercialized. Reportedly, many of the townsfolk and park workers were opposed to the mere concept of the sale. Jim Yellig, who is said to have been Santa to more children than any single other person else in the world, was quoted as saying, quote, I hope it's never sold. I'd be lost without this job. I love it so much. End quote. After a year on the market, the Cook family did decide to retain ownership of the park. There had been several interested buyers, but none were willing to abide with the requirements on non-commercialization. So the decision was made to keep it within the family. By 1955, the park began charging admission, 50 cents for adults, kids free. In 1960, Bill Cook married Santa's daughter, Patricia Yellig, daughter of Jim Yellig, a poetic reminder of the importance of those two families to the city of Santa Claus, Indiana. Back in Arizona, Ninon Talbot's time at Santa Claus, Arizona was coming to an end. World War II hadn't necessarily been kind to the attraction. It closed U.S. 93 road access across Hoover Dam for several years in the 1940s, and tourist traffic in general had slowed down. Talbot's husband, Ed, passed away in 1942, and she did remarry two years later, still operating the restaurant and promoting her Santa Claus Acres lot. Several of the lots did actually sell, but none of them were ever built upon, despite the proximity to the booming tourist attraction of the Hoover Dam and the location along the essential route to Las Vegas. Why? Why did no one ever live there? Water, as always is the story in the desert, was the reason. Santa Claus, Arizona had unexpectedly been built atop land where the water table was very, very deep due to a nearby geologic fault. No successful wells could be dug. So water had to be hauled by tanker the 14 miles from Kingman in a big, big tanker truck, a very expensive task. Notes on the dining tables in her restaurant reminded guests not to waste water, signed Mrs. Claus. Talbot also began losing personal interest in running the tourist attraction due to her increased gambling habit, reportedly gambling away entire day's profits at a time. Her second husband died in 1947, 
And she was getting older. She became less interested in water conservation. She became less interested in constant food and guest service, especially with the lure of those gaming tables nearby. In 1950, she sold Santa Claus and moved back to Los Angeles near her children. The new owners, Doc and Emma Brahmaheem, carried on where Ninon Talbot had left off, and for a decade it still did sometimes seem like a holiday at Santa Claus. However, business began to slow again, and the Brahmahims began closing the attraction December through February starting in the mid-50s in order to save money. Again, water was the big issue. They were exhausted with trucking that water, and reportedly they drilled a staggering 12,000 feet deep well and still didn't find water. This was the last straw, and they sold Santa Claus in 1965. From here, it was nothing but downhill for the town of Santa Claus, Arizona, with the common end-of-life tale for roadside attractions like these. At least eight different owners spun through the place, which clearly had some draw or romance for those who didn't give initial thought to the later practicalities of water and customer service. But of course, no owner lasted long with the face of these things, and therefore no one invested any significant money in improvements or even basic upkeep. Maintenance slipped and things got shabby. The new owners even stopped answering the children's Christmas letters each year. The holiday aesthetic of the neat and charming Santa Claus village was lost. Where once there was Mrs. Santa Claus and her famous rum pie drawing in writers and all kinds of famous people, now there were microwave sandwiches. The gas station actually closed, becoming a very slow-moving antique and curio shop reportedly specialized in music boxes. One owner reportedly favored using mannequins in parked cars in an attempt to give the attraction an air of busyness when viewed from a car driving by on the road. Author Mark Weingartner described the latter days of Santa Claus in his 1987 book, Elvis Presley Boulevard, From Sea to Shining Sea, Almost. Quote, Styrofoam silver bells, strands of burnt-out Christmas lights, and faded plastic likenesses of old St. Nick garnished this little village. A lopsided artificial 20-foot tree whistled in the wind beside a broken Coke machine and an empty ice freezer. Two of the three buildings were padlocked, through their windows, encrusted with layers of sand and decade-old aerosol snow, end quote. Drivers in the second half of the century, they weren't looking for roadside attractions and surprises like their parents and grandparents had. And when you're driving today, you're not looking for that either. People wanted to get where they were going, be it to the glimmers of Phoenix in one direction or Vegas in the other. The interstate highway system and speed were the new things. Despite this, though, US-93 is still a very well-traveled road, as it is the road that still gets you from Kingman to Las Vegas and back. This is the road. A variety of new uses for Santa Claus, then, have been proposed throughout the years, but nothing has gone beyond the dreaming stage. At times, there were proposed a foster home, a trailer park, a cocktail lounge, a shopping center. Again, due to that same water issue, 
nothing ever went forward. Ultimately, the town of Santa Claus, Arizona was wiped from the official maps, and it officially closed its services between 1993 and 1995. The entire quote-unquote town has been for sale on and off since then. As of the time of this recording, you can buy Santa Claus, Arizona for the princely sum of $440,000. And I'll link to the real estate listing in my show notes. The listing dully lists a brief history of the place, ending with the following in a scream, entirely in caps and without punctuation, and including several typographical and grammatical errors. Quote, Four acre on major highway bring back the original town of Santa Claus, spelled as C-L-A-U-S-E, once had its on-post office number, think of a great show, car, and bike stop, make a statement, rebuild, and draw in the tourist and the locals. End quote. That does not make me want to buy the town. Route 93, where Santa Claus is still located, as I mentioned, this is still the sole route between Las Vegas and major Arizona cities. Yet Santa Claus sits abandoned, covered in graffiti, and dilapidated along the side of the road in the middle of the harsh and unyielding Mojave Desert. It's really a cautionary note for the future of many desert cities, as water in the area becomes more scarce. What happens when a place is no longer habitable? Here lies... Santa Claus, Arizona. It was reportedly one of Charles Howard's great dreams, that modest little theme park called Christmas Park, sitting next to the school for Santa Clauses in Albion, New York. It was ultimately not a long-lived park, however. Howard became distressed with the direction the park was heading in 1964, quoted in an article at the time as saying, quote, They put in merry-go-rounds and Ferris wheels. I have nothing against these things, but in Christmas Park, a Ferris wheel should be in the form of a Christmas wreath, and a merry-go-round should have reindeer to ride on, end quote. His complaints came along with reports of financial troubles, and the next year in 1965, Christmas Park filed for bankruptcy, about three-quarters of a million dollars of debt in today's money. The entire operation was sold at auction. A man named Vincent Cardone was reported to have purchased the school and theme park, and a woman named Elizabeth Babcock purchased the Santa suit business, which she had been managing already for several years. Other items and tracts of land were sold to other buyers. Howard died in 1966, the next year. Said by a journalist at the time, he, quote, guided his sleigh into the limitless great beyond, end quote. Despite being purchased, the remnants of Christmas Park were actually just left alone, untouched by all accounts for about the last 50 or so years, and they still remain there to this day, including the old train tunnel and the barns, some still with signs attached and Christmas wreaths decorating the insides. I'll link to some images of the abandoned sites. Today, a historical marker stands on the site, a New York historical marker, and it reads, quote, Santa Claus, Charles W. Howard, 1896 to 1966. In 1937, he established here a world-famous Santa Claus school, the first of its kind, a 1953 Christmas park, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Santa Claus, end quote. 
And what about Santa Claus Land in Santa Claus, Indiana? The park continued to add new rides through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which are delightfully detailed on the park's official website on their official timeline page, which I'll link to in the show notes. In the 1970s, the park moved its entrance, which was apparently a part of a bigger change. This signaled a major focus change from the kid-focused to the whole family. In this same time period, they added nine major rides between 1970s and 1980s. And by 1984, the park officially changed its name. They called itself Holiday World and expanded with two new holiday-themed areas, Halloween and Fourth of July. Jim Yellig served as Santa at the park from its opening in 1946 until a few months before his death in 1984. There's also been a couple of community housing developments from the Cook family called Christmas Lake Village and Holiday Village. 1993 saw the addition of a major water park called Splash and Safari, and 2006 saw the addition of a Thanksgiving-themed area to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the park. As is obviously clear from all these additions, the park is, of course, still open today, and it's a major, award-winning theme park and water park. At least four generations of the Cook family have owned the park. In 2004, the park actually won the International Applause Award, which honors foresight, originality, and creativity, plus sound business development and profitability. And this is said to be the smallest theme park that ever won this award. Ironically, the park is actually once again no longer open during the Christmas season. It's closed mid-November through mid-May. Visitors to Santa Claus, Indiana actually kind of find themselves in a similar situation to folks 70 years ago. There's not a lot of Santa Claus the Big Red Guy in Santa Claus the Town around the holidays the way there used to be. As part of the park's 70th anniversary celebrations, the Freedom Train, originally gone by a different name, that miniature railroad engine that was the last original ride from the park, was brought back as a stationary display, considered by the park's president as, quote, an important part of our history, end quote. And that's your train fact for the day. We've had a lot of trains in this episode. There's the, there's the end one. As for Santa Claus the School, it too is actually still in operation. Despite Santa Claus School being sold with Christmas Park um, in the 60s in Albion, it actually kept operating until 1968, at which point Charles Howard's friends named Nate and Mary Ida Doran moved the school to Bay City, Michigan. In 1987, a new couple, Tom and Holly Valent, took over operation and they moved the school to Midland, Michigan, where it still teaches approximately 300 Santas per year today. And as of 2010, professional Santa Philip L. Wentz authored something called the Santa Claus Oath. It's a set of guiding principles for those seeking to embody Santa Claus. The oath was dedicated in the honor of Charles Howard and Jim Yellig in the rotunda of Santa's Candy Castle, there in Santa Claus, Indiana. To the pedantic out there, as we get back to our initial question about earliest theme parks, 
Of course, there are always debate about which park gets which title. And so there are other parks out there that claim the, the award for first theme park. You might also award Knott's Berry Farm the title of the first theme park, as it had a Wild West and Ghost Town area that opened back in 1941, which was earlier than our friend Santa Claus Land. However, it was still primarily a restaurant at the time, and it didn't become an enclosed theme park officially until the 50s or 60s. But that's neither really here nor there. And of course, if you broaden the question to include amusement parks and not just theme parks, you're going to have to go back way until at least the 1500s. Of course, there was another Christmas theme park that was also considered one of the first theme parks in the United States. But we will have to save that one for another year. I really like this quote I found while researching for this episode in an article about historical preservation and Charles Howard. Orleans County historian Matt Ballard writes in a 2018 article, quote, Material culture serves a valuable purpose in the process of interpreting the past. Void of any physical representation of past cultures, we would lose all ability to understand the lives of those who lived without a voice, end quote. It's this quote that shines a light on at least my own fascination with abandoned places and particularly abandoned theme parks. What we leave behind helps us understand what came before, especially the little things that history likes to gloss over. Charles Howard, one of the great Santa Clauses himself, wrote a letter in favor of historical preservation for landmark buildings in Albion in the 1960s. From a young age, too, Howard also realized that not only was historical preservation important, but teaching the role of Santa Claus was a great task, and he always viewed that task as a privilege. So important was this role that Howard remarked, quote, To say there is no Santa Claus is the most erroneous statement in the world. Santa Claus is a thought that is passed from generation to generation. After time, this thought takes on human form. Maybe if all children and adults understand the symbolism of this thought, we can actually attain peace on earth and goodwill to men everywhere. End quote. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where this time we talked about Santa Claus the person and the number of towns called Santa Claus. In particular today, I like to recommend Douglas Town's excellent in-depth article about Santa Claus, Arizona, called, quote, maybe Christmas wasn't meant to last forever, end quote. It was particularly interesting to read, and it was instrumental in fleshing out my research on that attraction. You can find it free online, and you can find all of my links, all of my references I used when writing this episode. They're all in the show notes at my website, theabandonedcarousel.com, and for this episode, backslash 26. I hope you've enjoyed this year of the Abandoned Carousel, where we dig into the histories of abandoned theme parks. I think 
I've really been gratified to learn more about the very interesting lives that the people have lived long before me and the great impacts that they've had on our society and culture. And I hope you've been enjoying it too. I'll be back in 2020, oh my goodness, with more abandoned theme parks and more abandoned amusements and more great histories of interesting people and places. And I hope you're going to come along with me and enjoy the ride. Stay tuned with me across social media and check for updates as the season progresses. You can find me as The Abandoned Carousel everywhere or Carousel Abandoned on Twitter. The easiest way to get in touch with me is email. That's the one that I always read first. So you can find that contact information at my website. I always like comments and corrections and suggestions for future episodes. I really love to hear from you. For the meantime, happy holidays, season's greetings, and remember what Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.